take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. As a church, we've been studying Hebrews for a couple of months now, and if you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page uh, 1003. Hebrews is written to a group of folks probably of Jewish descent, but they've left everything to follow Christ. Well, now they're starting to think about all that they had left behind, and they're starting to see the possible persecution that lies ahead, and they're thinking about leaving the faith. And so the author, who was probably the pastor of this wandering flock, is telling them, you know, no matter where you look, you'll never find anyone or anything that compares to Jesus Christ. That's what we've seen so far in the very beginning. He says, oh, you're impressed with the prophets? Jesus is greater. You're impressed with the angels? Jesus is greater than the angels. Oh, you're impressed with Moses? Jesus is greater than Moses. We saw it last week. You're impressed with the the rest that Joshua was able to lead the Israelites into in the promised land? Well, Jesus is a greater leader who offers you greater rest. That's what we've been seeing. Now, today we come to a passage that if you're reading straight through, it would seem a little bit out of place because he's been talking about the superiority of Jesus. And then all of a sudden he switches gears and he talks about the word of God. Here's the connection. Last week we saw the warning that some of the Hebrew people back 1,400 years before Christ had failed to enter into God's rest, the promised land, because they didn't believe God's word. And he's getting ready to say to us, don't make the same mistake, doubting God's word and not receiving God's rest. Now, before I read these verses, let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is heavenly truth. It is, uh, it is your mind shared for us on paper. And I pray, O oh God, that we would be attentive to it. And that we would be affected by it. Lord, there are some in here who are afflicted. And I pray that you would bring them comfort today. And there are some in here who are too comfortable in their faith, complacent towards Christ, and I pray that you would afflict their consciences this morning. Father, I I ask that you would work mightily, give us humble attentiveness to the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews 4. Uh, We're going to focus on verses 12 and 13, but for the sake of context, I'm also going to read verse 11. So Hebrews 4, starting at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall short by the same sort of disobedience. That's, of course, speaking of the Hebrew people falling short of the promised land. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The most significant event, probably of the last thousand years, was on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther, a a monk, nailed a series of 95 complaints to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. These complaints were directed towards the Roman Catholic Church, and Luther believed that these were 95 areas in which the church was accepting incorrect teaching, teaching that differed from what Scripture taught. Now, most of us that are familiar with the Protestant Reformation, we know that the main issue of the Protestant Reformation was justification. Is man justified by, just, uh, by faith plus works, as Rome taught? Or is man justified by faith alone, as Luther argued that Scripture taught? But before that question of justification could be answered, there was a more foundational question that had to be answered, and that is, who has the authority to answer that question in the first place? And Rome says, that's easy. We do. The church does. And Luther says, no, the Bible has that authority, and only the Bible can tell us what to believe. That was a big deal 500 years ago, and it's an equally big deal today because the Bible still speaks as much today and with as much authority today as it did 500 years ago and 2,000 years ago and in the very beginning. And before I jump into the deep end of the pool, let me set the passage uh, in its context so you can see how it relates. Last week, as I said, we were confronted with that warning not to fall short of God's rest. And we said last week that that idea of rest is a picture of the salvation. It was salvation offered to the Jews. They had been delivered out of slavery, and they were going to be delivered into this land of rest. But most of them, in fact, all but two, rejected that promise. They did not believe God's word. And the author of Hebrews is saying there's a parallel between what happened 1,400 years before and their day, which was that people always struggle with trusting God's word. So that's how we get to these verses. He says in verse 11, strive to enter God's rest. Why? So that no one may fall short of the same disobedience. And the disobedience that he has in mind was the Israelites' failure to believe God. You know, look back at verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. In other words, this entire generation of Hebrew people simply refused to trust God. Now, these are people that had seen God do incredible things. They had seen the plagues. They had seen God part the Red Sea. They had seen manna from heaven and quail. They had seen water from a rock but then they refused to believe God's promises that this land he was offering to them could be theirs. And they hardened their hearts and mocked God and murmured against him when he promised that he would provide the land. Now, that scenario 1,400 years before gives the foundation for understanding a major human problem. 
And that major human problem is that there is something within us that is prone to unbelief. There is something within the human heart prone to unbelief. In fact, that's what sin is. Sin is failure to believe that what God says is right and true. And there is something in our hearts that is prone to that, humanly speaking. That generation, 3,400 years ago now, didn't enter the land because of unbelief. And 1,400 years ago, some of these professing Christians were going to leave the faith because of unbelief. And it's as much of a problem for us today. Failure to believe God's word. So what's the solution? It's one that is so simple and it's so complex. You and I will spend the rest of our lives working on it. The solution is you and I need to be absolutely convinced in our hearts of the trustworthiness of what God has spoken to us in his word. And then we respond by faith and obedience. That's what this passage is all about, the trustworthiness of God's word, why you can, you can trust the whole of your life to what is laid out for us in scripture. We see in these verses that God's word is more powerful, more relevant, and more effective than we think. Even us, and this is a congregation that really loves God's word, but even a congregation like this really has no grasp on how trustworthy God's word is. What we're going to do today is look at two things. The first point will be a lot longer than the second. The first is, what is God's word? And the second point is, how should we respond to God's word? What is it and how should we respond? Look with me first at verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What does it mean by the word of God? Now, the, the word is God's self-revelation. It's God telling you who he is and what he's done. The plainest understanding of God's word is what we saw in Hebrews 1, that Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, if we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus. But how do we know who Jesus is? We look to the scriptures. And so God has given us 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses telling us who Jesus is. That's what the scriptures are all about. It's that one story of how God in Christ has saved us, redeemed us, and restored us to that promised rest that we saw last week. That's why every word of scripture is given to show us Jesus Christ. Don't miss this point. It's easy to take for granted. You know this is the word of God. I always appreciate when Pastor Walton is preaching. He, he has a sense of being astounded. This is the word of God. We should all have that sense that the God of the universe who hung the stars and the sun and the moon in place, who formed the heavens and the earth and formed you, he has spoken to us. He has told us what we need to know about him. We would be in an utterly hopeless and helpless situation if not for the scriptures, and we should never take that for granted. Amen? But the problem is that we do. 
And I want you to see how often Hebrews is going to reinforce this danger because you and I do live in light of this danger. Look back at chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 3, 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Then look at verse 15 in chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Then look at chapter 4, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why does he keep repeating that? Because that is naturally what most of us are going to do. We're going to harden our hearts. We're going to perhaps acknowledge it with our lips, but keep our hearts far away from it. But we need to hear the word because that's how we enter the rest. Look back at verse 6 that we looked at last week. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. This is speaking of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ, salvation in Christ. He says, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. Unbelief is a terrible peril for our souls. There's a better promise for us today than the Hebrew people had. It's the promise of rest in Christ. And the way we receive it is by believing the promises of God's word. And so as this pastor is writing to his wavering flock, he wants to bolster their faith by telling them, here's why you can trust the word. And we see several reasons in verse 12. Look, first, he says the word is living. The word is alive. He doesn't mean that the pages of the Bible themselves become alive as if it could be scientifically proven but rather that in the Bible, the God of the Bible lives and meets with us. This God is very much alive, and in his word, he meets with his people. You think of the Hebrew people as they had traveled through the wilderness, and God joined them in a pillar by day and fire by night. He was alive. He was leading them. God says this is the same kind of living that he lives in his word. You know, Hebrews 4 isn't the only place that the word is called living. Look back with me at Acts 7 for a moment. Stephen, before he was stoned to death, gives this tremendous sermon on a history of redemption. And in verse 38, speaking of Moses, he said, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles, living oracles, living words. He is saying there that law given to Moses 1,400 years before is as much alive today as it was when it was spoken to Moses. Why? Because it is the word of the living God. And then look over at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, verse 23, Peter says, Since you have been born again, not of, Im- of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. The scriptures live. 
You know, you see in, in the life of Moses, you see Moses fellowshipping with God. You see Peter fellowshipping with God. And when you open the scriptures, it is just as much alive to you as it was to them. Contrast this with a biography. Let's say George Washington. There's some wonderful George Washington biographies. You and I could go check out every George Washington biography that's ever been written, and we might find some really good ones. And we might even say, you know, this author just really made him come alive. But you know, if we went and dug up George Washington's bones, he is still dead, no matter how well an author may present it. But when we open the Bible by faith, we meet with the living God. The power of the Spirit, through the power of the Spirit, God so fellowships with us that as we read the Bible and hear the Bible, we encounter God himself. That's why as a church we devote so much time to the ministry of God's Word. There's so much else we could do. Certainly, we could make the the, the worship service a concert. We could turn this into a drama. We could turn it into a TED Talk. There's so much that we could do. But it's only through Scripture that God meets with His people. And so all of those other things, as entertaining as they might be, would ultimately be of no benefit to you. We're devoted to the ministry of the Word because in the Word you meet with God Himself. To quote John Frame, contemporary theologian, he says, when we encounter the Word of God, we encounter God Himself. His Word, indeed, is His personal presence. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. You know, that's the goal of what we do in this church. It's not just to have well-trained Christians who can go and win arguments. Our desire is that you would meet with God in your personal time with Him, in corporate worship, that you would meet with Him. Let me give you a couple implications that the Word of God is living For one thing, because God's word is living, we know that it's true. Numbers 23, 19, God says, I cannot lie. And therefore, we can have incredible confidence that whatever he has said is true because it is him himself. He would not misrepresent himself in scripture. It was so wise of God to give us the word Because if we did not have a book that is unchanging, we would certainly change God. Mark Twain said, In the beginning, God created man in his image, and ever since, man has been returning the favor. We love to make God in our image, but we have this living book where God has told us truthfully who he is, and therefore we must believe this book or we cannot know this God. Another implication is to love God is to love God's Word. You've heard people say this before, I'm spiritual, I believe in God, but not the God of the Bible. That is an absolute contradiction in terms. Because the way we meet the God of the universe, the God of the world, is in His Word. This is where we meet God. If you believe in a God that is not found in Scripture, then he is a God of your own making. 
and he is unnecessarily a false god. Another implication. If somebody ever says to you, and you'll hear this more in charismatic and Pentecostal circles, I just want to hear a word from the Lord. Say, okay, I got a lot of words for you. No, 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 I just want to hear an audible word. Okay, where do you want to start? This is God's word. We do not need more than the scriptures. And if somebody tells you you need more than the Bible, they're lying. This book contains everything we need for life and godliness. Another implication. It is timeless. Because the God of the Bible lives, the Bible is going to outlive us. And so this flies in the face of those who say, you know, maybe 2,000 years ago that was right, but today we know more. The truths of the Bible are timeless. They do not change with the culture, and that is why we so badly need the Scriptures. Because we in the Scriptures have something that is eternally true. God will not change His mind tomorrow about what He has written to us in His Word. You'll be dead one day. God's word will live on. And history's proven that point. There's a great illustration from history. The French philosopher Voltaire in the 18th century said, a hundred years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. In one of the most ironic acts of history, within 50 years, the Evangelical Bible Society of Geneva, Switzerland, was using Voltaire's house as a repository to store Bibles. Not as a museum piece, but to be distributed for world evangelization. The scriptures are timeless. It's a little bit of a scary point. Because the study of God's word and the preaching of God's word, it's not some intellectual exercise. It is meeting face to face with the same God from whom the angels hid their eyes. This is the God we meet with in Scripture. We ought to pay careful attention when he speaks to us. So let me ask you before we move on, do you come to God's word expecting to meet with the living God? You should, because he expects to meet with you. And he meets with us in his word. So first, it's living. Second, it tells us the word is active. And that word's hard to translate. It's the word energes. It's the root of our word energy. It sounds weird to say the word is energetic. But it means it works. It it accomplishes what it's intended to accomplish. That should be no surprise to us that God's word is powerful or active. You think of of creation. How did God create He created with his word. You think of how Jesus healed people. It was most often with his word. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, it was with his word. In fact, he had to use the name Lazarus because if he had just told all the dead, if he had just said arise, all the dead would have raised. His word is that powerful. What God says in his word accomplishes what he intends. So what does the Word do? It does a number of things. The Word reveals God's will to us. People can be really mysterious and mystical about the will of God as if God's keeping some secret from them. 
the Bible tells us what we need to know about the will of God. Romans 12, 2, be transformed. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to test and prove what God's will is. Well, how, how do I know where God wants me to live? You know, God is far more concerned with your obedience to his word. Who does God want me to marry? Well, he wants you to marry a believer. He wants you to marry somebody that points, him, points you to Christ. It, it, we make things far more complicated than they are. The will of God is for you to live in accord with his scriptures. So it reveals God's will to us. The scriptures also bring us to maturity in Christ. We call the ministry of the word an ordinary means of grace. It's one of the ways that God grows us to maturity. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, that's what it's doing as it goes forth. You may not feel it, but that is what it's doing as you receive it by faith. Why? So that the man, the woman, the child of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means equipped there means, or complete means mature. It brings us to Christian maturity. As Don Shepherd often reminds me, sermonettes make Christianettes. Little sermons, 10-minute sermons make little Christians. We need weighty preaching so that we could become mature believers. Third, it makes us wise. It makes us wise. Psalm 119, 98, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Now, the scriptures just give us practical wisdom, wisdom for living. It also comforts us in the midst of affliction. Psalm 119, 50, this is my comfort and my affliction that your promise gives me life. Store the word up in your heart. And in the moment of affliction, God will bring those things to your soul, to your remembrance. And the promises of God, which may not have meant as much to you in the past, in the moment of affliction, they become the buoy that keeps you afloat. There's another thing the Word does, and I want you to be very attentive to this. The Word also divides us. Back in verse 2, of Hebrews 4, we see that. We're told all of Israel was effectively divided into two groups, those who were able to enter the land and those who weren't. The Word of God does, as it's read, as it's preached, it is going to humble some and harden others. A true born-again Christian, as the word is read and preached, will be humbled, will repent, will grow in tenderness towards God. But the same scripture, the same sermon even, can take somebody else and harden their heart all the more. Make their heart all the more calloused to God. They may hear what God's word says. They may even enjoy the sermon but come up with all sorts of reasons and excuses not to obey it. 
And what typically happens is they'll either leave or even worse, they'll become so callous that they can sit under it week after week after week and it has no effect on them whatsoever. The word divides us into believers and unbelievers. That's what's happening this very moment. Right now, your heart is either being hardened or humbled. It's either being softened or it is becoming calloused. That happens as the word goes forth. It does all these things. And so when it says the word is active, it's saying that's what Scripture does. Everything you need for the Christian life, for the godly Christian life, is found in Scripture. And God uses the word as it's read and preached to accomplish those things in you. That we believed that more. We live in a world that is sin sick and getting sicker, it seems, by the day. We live in a world where children who aren't old enough to drive are allowed to pursue their gender, pursue medical procedures to mutilate their bodies just because at 13 years old a girl felt like a tomboy. We live in a world where states are allowed to vote on whether it's okay to kill unborn babies because they're inconvenient. We're turning as a world, we're turning the classroom as a, into a place to indoctrinate the next generation with a militantly anti-Christian worldview. And where are Christians in this? We are all too silent. Why? Because we don't believe the word is sufficient. We don't believe that the word is sufficient to speak into those things because if we did, we would be speaking the truth of the gospel to everybody we meet. We would be proclaiming the gospel in every situation of life. We need the word, and if we wish to be useful to the kingdom, we need to unleash the word. Um, Luther, writing years after the Protestant Reformation, said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. While I slept, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such loss upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. In other words, beloved, if we desire to see change in the world, it is not through political maneuvering, it is not through economic strategizing, it is through gospel proclamation. The word alone is active. It it is alone powerful to do that. So it's living, it's active. Third, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Uh, Pretty much all commentators agree this is talking about the Roman uh, short sword. Is about a two-foot-long sword. It was used in close hand-to-hand combat, and it had to be incredibly sharp to pierce the enemy's armor. Do you know what the hardest type of armor in the world is? It's the stone around the human heart. Psychology can't transform it. Philosophy can't transform it. Self-help books can't transform it. The word of God alone can pierce that armor. 
Look what it says it does when it gets there. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, it, it shows us who we really are. Identity is a big deal right now in our culture. The scriptures alone can tell us our true identity, who we really are. It pierces to the deepest parts of us. Those things that you and I may be able to do to fool everyone else, maybe even to fool ourselves about how good of people we are, Scripture cuts right through it. Scripture pierces through all of it. It cuts away the pretense to the core of who we are. You know, that is why Scripture can be so offensive to people because it's like looking in a mirror and we don't like what we see. Or another way of looking at it, have you ever flipped over a two-by-four, a piece of wood that's been laying in the dirt for some time, for months or years, and you flip it over and a whole colony of bugs go scurrying, fleeing from danger, fleeing from light. Doesn't Scripture do the same? Piercing to the parts of us that we don't want anyone to see. And don't we often run away for fear of being seen? But what we need to realize is Christ does not run away appalled by what he has seen. He's seen it all. And he runs towards us in healing mercy. And so when the scriptures penetrate to us and we're laid bare before it, that's when God's healing graces work. That's when he repairs us like a skilled surgeon. And so when Scripture shows us how badly we have sinned, Christ shows us how sufficient his grace is. When Scripture shows us how wrong we've been, Christ shows us who he is. Let that sink in. When Scripture confronts and corrects us, our pride wants to run and hide but Christ draws near to us that we may be healed. We should never be afraid to repent because Jesus Christ came for sinners. But you should be very afraid not to repent. You should be very afraid to harden your heart. We, we saw that last week. Let us fear lest any of you should have failed to enter in. He's saying, don't be like the Hebrews that had all the privileges, all the opportunities, all the promises, and their hearts remained hard. Don't look at God and say, thanks, but no thanks. You can't be ambivalent about the word. You can't be complacent about it. That's the word of God. Let's look now at our response, and this is going to be the shortest sermon point in the history of First Scots. What should our response be? Trust and obey the word. Trust and obey the word. There is no justification for any disposition to God's word that does not involve trust and obedience. Every other approach is a lie. See, I told you that was a really short point, wasn't it? But then we get application. How do we apply this text? Let me give you a couple of things. First, we need to pay proper attention. If God is really present 
when the word is preached, when the word is read, when you're sitting there in front of your Bibles early in the morning, late at night, you ought to pay full attention. Imagine a parent speaking firmly to a child and the child is looking all over the place thinking about all sorts of other things. If we revere God, if we fear God, then we must pay proper attention to his word. Second application, we need to obey God's word. Many people profess to be Christians today, but they believe and they teach that grace permits us, gives us a free pass to do whatever we want. And they've tragically convinced themselves that the Christian life can be lived apart from obedience to God. It's certainly not obedience that makes us Christians. But if obedience to the word of God takes a back seat, then we have misunderstood biblical Christianity. For true followers of Christ, obedience is never optional. At the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Christ is living in devotion to God. And the acid test of devotion is obedience. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will do whatever you want to do. No, no, no. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. Oh, that's legal. No, that's not legalism. That's biblical Christianity. And the reason we push back against that and call it legalism is because we like to sin. That is biblical Christianity. Third application. We need to ask the word to test our lives. We need to bring our lives before this double-edged sword of Scripture. Because here's what he's saying. By setting us against the backdrop of the Hebrew people who had every benefit, who were ethnically Jews, yet didn't enter into the land, he's saying, you know, it's entirely possible for a person to be part of a Christian congregation and hear the good news every Sunday and look and dress and act like a Christian and not believe a word of it. Just look back at the wilderness. They heard the gospel, they heard the promises, and they didn't believe. And so bring your heart before the word of God. Am I trusting in Christ? Go to the word and ask it to to test your heart. Do I believe in the Lord Jesus, or have I placed my hope in the gods of this world? In the end, many will find the latter was the case, even though they thought they were believers. Let that not be true of you. Faith that hasn't been tested according to the word is a faith that cannot be trusted. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, I pray that you have pierced into our hearts, that you have brought us both conviction of sin and joy over grace. Lord, I pray especially for those whose hearts have remained cold this morning and they feel no different. They see you as no more glorious than when they walked in. Father, I pray that you would